Direct from both Eternia and Etheria, from deep within the confines of Castle Grayskull, it's time to join in the battle for the power of goodness with Chris Vint and the Masters of the Universe Chronicles. Hello everyone and welcome to November's Master of the Universe Chronicles. Uh, of course, as you would have heard last month on James A. Talk's uh, interview, that this month we have the long-awaited interview with Jack Alesker. Um, to gotta say, straight off the bat, one of my favourite interviews to conduct and uh, Jack Alesker, just one of the nicest guys that I've had the privilege to talk to. Everyone else I've had on the show, of course, is lovely and so nice to talk to but with me as uh, some of you know not being the hugest New Adventures fan this guy actually convinced me to then buy a box set of it and sit down and watch it which I thoroughly enjoyed I must say um, must be getting older and wiser that's Jack Alesker not me of course um, yeah so uh uh, just obviously this month we still have the normal contributions GMC talks Parney on our 10th fact of the month uh, Sween Halleck who's Luke Nicholas, whichever way you want to call him, um, with Dream Teams. James Sawyer with uh, the Chronicles Comics Corner. And lastly, but by no means leastly, is Mike F- uh, Ficklin with Flicking Through the Pages with Ficklin. Um, this month as well, um, there's another prize. Um, one I will get on to in a minute. Uh, but speaking of last month, last month, uh, James E. Talk, uh, was on the show, obviously, to discuss his awesome, fantastic, uh, insert all great words of praise here, uh, unofficial cartoon guide to He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. And we were giving away a copy of said book. Now, James's question was, who is the Wizard of Stone Mountain? Was it A. Tila, B. Gootman, or C. Malik. It was either way. It was one or the other. So of course the answer was B. Goatman. So well done to. Oh no, no, hold on. Sorry, it wasn't uh, Goatman. It was Malik. So yes. So uh, uh, I would put in a drum roll here, but I'll just bang on the laptop instead and say that the winner of the book was Tyler Baker. So well done, Tyler. Uh, your book has been ordered. It has been uh, dispatched and everything. So um, I hope that you will send me a photo of yourself with the book. Um, and um, congratulations on your winning the awesome book. And I think Mr. E-Talk may put in a little something for you. I'm not going to say what. Uh, just in case he doesn't. Um, so yeah, so Mike Ficklin also has a prize this month um, for his review of the trap uh i'm not going to divulge what the um competition um concerns because i'll leave it up to mike but you need to have your entries in no later than november the 30th um so if you can have your entries in by then uh just head over to the pop culture network forums and uh, post your ideas on uh, what he is going to ask you to do <coughs> obviously the pop culture network is the official home of master universe chronicles so obviously you could tr- check out some awesome podcasts there such as operation retroshock which features some guy who sounds similar to me and alan price as well yeah the likes of not mint box with the awesome rob bass and the radical retro turtle toy talk with the 
superb Sween Halleck, and you also have the likes of that new toy smell every Saturday, and it figures every Wednesday as well. So, let's crack on with the show then, and we'll head over to the fan contributions part of the show um, for all the goodness, and then the Jack Alesker interview. Of course, we still have the commentaries um, up every month as well with James E. Talk, so why not head over to Pop Culture Network forums and see... Uh, say to us what you would actually like to um, see reviewed. Oh, and before I go, uh, unfortunately, Roboto, <coughs> excuse me, Roboto, you see I'm getting all choked up. Roboto is still in the process of moving house, so unfortunately there is no segment from Roboto. Again, head to the Pop Culture Network forums and basically just say, Roboto, where are you? Uh, we really need to have him back on the show. It's not the same without him, and I would ideally like to have him back in time for Christmas. Uh, just to talk to the gentleman before we go anyway. So, uh, yep, over to the fan contributions part of the show, and then it's over to the interview with Jack Alesker. So, until, well, we'll speak to you in a few anyway. Goodbye. And now, it's the fan contributors part of the show. Hello all and welcome to another installment of Chronicles Comics Corner, the portion of the Chronicles show where we take a look at He-Man's history in comics. I'm James Sawyer, otherwise known as Sala. Last episode we took a look at a mini-comic. Now we're going to go back into the DC stuff and open up with the first issue of the three-issue miniseries, To Tempt the Gods. This issue was written by Paul Kupperberg, who also wrote the two sneak previews we looked at previously. The art handled by George Tusca, and the inks are by Alfredo Alcala, who did much of the early mini-comic work. Now, these, this three-issue miniseries doesn't really fall in line with the two sneak previews. You don't really have to have read those to read this miniseries. You can kind of make it work in your head by, by fiddling with the timeline a bit as to how it ended with Skeletor disappearing and half of the Power Sword was gone with him and half the Power Sword was left behind. But it's kind of better if you just kind of leave those alone and just read this on its own. The book opens up with a shot of Man-at-Arms, He-Man, Battlecat, Stratos, Shadow Skeletor in the background. Down in the corner is a lady in a gold bikini. That is Tila. In this first issue, she wears a outfit which is much different than her usual garb. Whether that has to do with George Tuscan not getting reference, or maybe he just liked to draw females more like Conan females, I have no idea. But she looks like that in this issue. That'll change once we get to the rest of the miniseries, but for now, that's how she looks. We're on Eternia. There's a castle looking very much like a medieval castle. It's the palace of King Randor and Queen Marlena, who look much older here than what we're used to seeing them in the Filmation series. There's a, festi- a festivity going on, and Man-at-Arms is talking to King Randor about how irresponsible Adam is, and how they ta- he taxes their patience, and how he doesn't take responsibility for his royal duties. And we are again shown here that Man-at-Arms does not know the secret of Adam being He-Man. Adam shows up and says, oh, have I ever failed you? And the king says uh, he vexes him and he should be more responsible and the queen's making an excuse for him. We find out that the reason he's late is actually because he was cavorting with a woman. But anyway, um, we are here told that the festivities are to celebrate that Queen Marlena arrived from Earth 25 years ago. So again, these early DC issues establish the fact that Queen Marlena is from Earth, which is then carried over into the Filmation series. Adam makes an excuse to leave. He says he has to retrieve a gift from his chambers. Who knows if that's true, if he wants to head back to the woman. We don't find out. But he heads back to his chambers, and he's thinking about how 
He, he doesn't want to cause his father grief, but for what was once just an adolescent rebellion must now become his personality as Prince Adam, to sort of cover the secret that he's He-Man. So we find out there that at one point Adam was this irresponsible, and then maybe the, the duty of being He-Man caused him to kind of take some responsibility for his actions. Adam arrives at his quarters, finds a bunch of demons and monstrosities there trying to attack him, takes refuge under his bed where he finds Cringer. They decide that it's Skeletor that sent these demons, so they have to head to the Cavern of Power to become He-Man and Battle Cat. They don't explain how they're able to escape the demons, they're just able to get out of there and head to the cavern, where they immediately become He-Man and Battle Cat. They're looking for the goddess, but then they hear laughter, Skeletor, who has somehow found out about the cavern. I don't know if he always knew about it, or if he just stumbled upon the cavern, or what. Um, but they're going to attack Skeletor, but he tells them, no, I'm, I'm going to tell you why I'm here. Um, you're never going to find the goddess if you don't let me talk. And he talks about the, the legend of the power sword, how it will only be united by somebody who will be the future king or one who is pure of soul. Now, uh, he knows he can't do it, so he figures he will kidnap the goddess and hold her for ransom, basically, and make He-Man find the other half, because he has one half. Um, so he tells He-Man that he knows that um, one who will one day be king or saddled with the curse of righteousness, and He-Man is that one. Now, whether this means that Skeletor knows that he is Adam, or he just knows that he's righteous, or he thinks that He-Man will one day be king, we don't know. But he convinces He-Man that unless he wants him to basically kill the goddess, he'll have to go find these three talismans, um, one for the sea, one for the sky, and one for the cosmos, that will lead him to the other half of the sword. He-Man reluctantly agrees. He and Battle Cat head off. We then are cut to a scene with Zodak, who, again, is portrayed here as very neutral as of now. He knows he can't interfere yet, but he shall be ready when the time comes that he must step in and balance the cosmos. I love Zodak. I love how he's portrayed in these DC issues. Anybody who doesn't like Zodak really needs to jump in and read these. Meanwhile, back in Eternia, He-Man is heading to the place where he thinks the first talisman is, and that's in the Royal Palace with the wizard Tarek. He arrives, and he's blocked by some guards. Tila lets him in. He then encounters King Randor and Queen Marlena, and he's kind of worried because he's never encountered them as He-Man before, and he knows other than his garb, he looks exactly like Adam. They aren't able to recognize him because he's so responsible, and Adam is so irresponsible, so they can't see past that. And Again, Prince or King Randor reiterates that he wishes he had a heir like He-Man rather than Adam. You kind of feel bad for Adam that King Randor gives him such a rough time at this point. It's it's way worse than it is in the Filmation series. They get to the wizard Tarek's quarters, and he's being attacked by demons. They fight them off. Uh, Man-at-Arms arrives to help He-Man, er, he Tila, and Battle Cat. They, they win the battle, but it's it's too late. The, the, the demons have already taken the talisman from Tarek. It was the... Uh, the Nexus Constellation talisman that's been taken. They're very frustrated because now they, they're one behind. And they don't even know why they're one behind because they don't know where these demons have come from. They, they would think that Skeletor would send them, but why would Skeletor send these demons when they're being sent by Skeletor? Tarek offers to help and join the crusade. We cut to Avion and the, the bird people and Stratos. They're, they're arriving um, to the regular townspeople. There's birdmen, and then there's regular people in Avion. So, 
we we are there and and we see Stratos has a talisman around his neck. The Beastmen that attack. There's no character specifically called Beastman at this point in the story. There's just a bunch of Beastmen. They arrive to attack to take the talisman from Stratos. Stratos heads off into the air to kind of divert the Beastmen on their, their dragons from attacking the regular townspeople. And Stratos is fighting a losing battle. He's trying to get away. Tarek and He-Man and, and his group notice that He's being attacked. Tarek casts a spell of invisibility on Stratos so he can escape. He manages to elude the Beastmen, and they have no choice but to head off. Stratos arrives to He-Man and uh, thanks him for his help. That's when He-Man sees the charm around his neck and grabs it and says, It's the sign of the bird, the talisman we seek. You know, now it's a it's an even battle. We each have a talisman. And that's the end of this episode. Or, I'm sorry, issue. Um, next issue, we're promised... The key to Castle Grayskull. Uh, if you're curious to find out what happens next episode, or issue, however you want to say it, uh, you can tune into the next episode of Masters Universe Chronicles, and we'll delve into that issue. For now, um, if you want to discuss it, you can head to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Masters of the Universe Classics, or you can head to the Chronicles Facebook page. But for now, let's head back to Chris Vent. You're listening to a podcast on PopCultureNetwork.com. Be sure to head on over to the site at www.PopCultureNetwork.com to check out more podcasts and videos featuring toys, comic books, video games, and all the things you love. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Pop Culture Network store, where everything you purchase helps to keep us producing. Just head over to PopCultureNetwork.com and click on Store. Welcome to November's Power in the Honor 10 Facts of the Month. Now, with me, hopefully not making any false trivia this time, is James Bustertons E-Talk. Hello to you, James, and what uh, daring facts have you made up this time? Oh, loads. I'm just, you know, Spike or was originally called Spike Man. <laughs> right, okay. Anything, <laughs> anything about your favourite Goatman in there at all? Don't talk about Goatman. I don't okay. he's, he's, uh, you know, him and... Um, and Fearless Photog are in the same category. Actually, Fearless Photog, I think, is a better character than uh, than Goatman. Oh, Goatman! <laughs> you do miss him so. Anyway, that um... was a romantic. Goatman. <laughs> yeah, if you say so. Um, so, sir, are you ready to go with your? Um, how many facts do you think you're going to get this time? We've had six, six. So let's not hope for six this time, eh? Oh, I see what you've done there. I think I'm going to go for five. I don't want to go for five. I want to go for <laughs> ten. But I think I'm only going to manage five looking at the uh, possible ramblings in the first few. Okay, okay. Right. Three, two, one, go. Okay, the episode Attack from Below features a flashback in which we see Skeletor, Trapdoor and Beastman um, betraying the Bellots. In the original script, it wasn't Skeletor and his evil warriors. It was just an unnamed king and queen. In the episode, oh, actually, the, sorry, I'll start that one again. The keeper, the episode Keeper of the Ancient Ruins is actually mistitled. The script and everything else calls it Keepers of the Ancient Ruins because there are more than one um, Zacton robot. Uh, Scorpio made a very brief appearance in the UK comic where the artist decided to illustrate her with a little mini skirt. Very nice. The royal cousin was originally titled The Treacherous Cousin and did not feature the growth globe at all. 
massive uh, plot missing there. In Orko's favourite uncle, we see the Talon Fighter parked, might be the wrong word to use, atop one of Castle Grayskull's turrets, much like how the toy would connect to the castle via Point Dread. In the letters column of the UK comic, the editor actually answered one child's question about the live action Master Universe movie, saying there were two Stop. more. But you can carry on without that. All right. He was basically saying there were two more movies in the pipeline, which we know was a big fat lie. And you got six. Oh, you are the devil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you see, it was to do with Goatman again. Sorry. Oh, and of course, he is. Oh, no. Sign of it's, the devil, the goat. Oh. It's all connected, you see. So, uh, thank you very much, James, for another uh, fun filled 60 seconds with yourself and six facts. Let's hope next time we can go for seven or eight. Are you going to push for seven or eight, or are you just going to go five, six? I might just do one. <laughs> see how I go. Okay, alright. So, uh, we'll have one fact from TNZ Talk. And when are we bringing in this read along with TNZ Talk? You know, you have to read some comics to us at some stage. Oh, man, I think that's something that should happen. I'd love to read a mini comic. Yeah, we can call it E Talkinora or something. <laughs> but, uh, thank you very much, James, and speak to you next month. Bye bye. Open the jar, The powers of evil control Castle Grayskull. Oh, yeah, Dad, what? Man, I'll get us inside, He-Man. Ram Man, He-Man, and Castle Grayskull, each sold separately. You have to put the castle together. Ram Man, use your head. I just did. Not that way. We have a prisoner. Good. Who's the prisoner? You are, because we have the power. Oh, no. Ram Man and He-Man from the Masters of the Universe collection, each sold separately. Castle Grayskull also sold separately from Mattel. Hello, all. Sween Hollick here, back for another segment of Dream Teams, only on Masters of the Universe Chronicles, where I offer up ideas of what characters from Masters of the Universe and the DC Universe that would make for good Masters of the Universe Classics DC Universe Classics 2-packs. As always, for the sake of clarity, I am no expert. This is simply one fan speculation. I have no inside information on the release of any future Mattel products, and any similarities between my speculation and anyone else's are pure coincidence. With that out of the way, let's get going with the guesswork. At the time of this recording, we are only a few days away from Halloween. There are spooky themes and gimmicks all around us at this time of year, and the way I see it, who am I to try and steer away from that trend? And two of the four most freaky figures from Masters of the Universe Classics and DC Universe Classics that I'd love to see in a two-pack are Scare Glow and Scare Crow. Honestly, I can't think of a better pack-in partner for either guy than the other, all the way down to the name Scare Glow obviously being a playoff of the word Scarecrow. Additionally, both wield the weapon of fear itself. I would estimate most listeners here are familiar with the much-debated history of the character of Scareglow. However, as we now know, the current Masters of the Universe Classics bios put the rumors to bed and confirm him to be the ghost of Karak Null, and not the ghost of Skeletor from the future. Never appearing in the Masters of the Universe cartoon, Scareglow's most noteworthy appearance is from his mini-comic, The Search for Keldor. In it, he uses his glow to induce Prince Adam with so much fear that he cannot transform into He-Man until Clamp Champ intervenes. Scarecrow is a Batman villain who first appeared in World's Finest Comics in 1941. His alter ego is the ironically insane psychiatrist Dr. Jonathan Crane. Due to a lifetime of personal torment, 
Dr. Crane uses the imagery of a scarecrow now thriving on fear rather than running from it. Having no magic powers like Scareglow, Scarecrow uses chemical hallucinogens designed to prey on the deepest fears of his victims, and for purposes ranging from mere mind control to murder. Even Batman himself has been forced to relive his traumas and face his worst nightmares in his many battles with Scarecrow. For the Scarecrow figure itself, there are a number of things that could be done. There hasn't been a 6-inch non-movie Mattel Scarecrow figure since before the DC Universe Classics line officially started. Simply re-releasing the old DC Superheroes figure into this line could suffice, maybe even with a few retouches in paint. Alternatively, he could be repainted with a few exchanges in parts to create a Sinestro Corps version of Scarecrow, as he appeared in the Blackest Night Mega Event. Scareglow, however, I have a hard time envisioning any changes that could possibly be an improvement. On one hand, how cool would it be to maybe have him able to glow red in the dark as an alternative to his normal green? The potential problem, though, is what color would he have to be painted in order to glow red? A pink or orange scareclow, in my opinion, would look too fleshy for this scary skeletal being, so if I had my way, I'd go with a simple reissue. Well, how would you like a Scareglow Scarecrow 2-pack? In what ways would you change it up? Well, if you have any agreements or disagreements, I'm not hard to reach. You can email me at sween underscore holic at popculturenetwork.com, or even better, find me on the forums at www.popculturenetwork.com. Pop Culture Network is where you can find my weekly video series, Radical Retro Turtle Toy Talk, where every week we take a look at vintage Playmates Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toys. You can also find tons of other great shows, podcasts, and articles on other toy lines, comics, cartoons, and everything else you love. Join the forums and visit the store today. Many thanks to Chris Fent for giving me a few minutes on his grand stage of Masters of the Universe Chronicles. This has been Sween Hollick, and remember to keep dreaming big. Hey guys, I'm Rob Bass, host of Not Mitten Box, and when you're not listening to the greatest podcast about He-Man, Master Universe Chronicles, check out my show with special guest, the man, the myth, the legend, Chris Vince, as he helps us teach you guys all about the Master Universe toys, such as Man-at-Arms, Cyclone, Merman, just to name a few, only on the Pop Culture Network. Hello, Masters of the Universe Chronicles listeners. Welcome to another segment of Flickin' Through the Pages with Ficklin. I'm Mike Ficklin, also known as VaderSW1 on the He-Man.org and Pop Culture Network forums. And uh, today we are going to review The Trap by W.B. Dubay and illustrated by Dan Spiegel. Uh, this is another one of the little golden books here. And uh, just like the uh, previous book I reviewed, which was The Sword of Skeletor, uh, it has a fantastic painting for the front cover. Once again, I am not sure of the artist for the painting, but it does, again, look like an Earl Norm painting. Uh, the guy's just phenomenal. He's done so many great pieces for Masters of the Universe over the years. It's just phenomenal. Um, this particular book follows uh, the adventures of He-Man and Stratos. Stratos actually comes upon He-Man 
who has crash landed on a beach in his Wind Raider, uh, and he's kind of unconscious as Stratos finds him. Uh, come to find out, uh, Skeletor had used some kind of illusion to make He-Man crash his uh, Wind Raider, and uh, as He-Man awakes, he and Stratos find that Skeletor dropped his half of the power sword on the beach in his hurry. And so He-Man is able to unite both halves of the power sword, and he and Stratos go to Castle Grayskull. As they enter, uh, and as they are going through the castle, they are confronted by many illusions uh, throughout the castle, and He-Man defeats each one of them with the use of the power sword. They keep hearing a sound as if someone's in trouble, and as they get to the bottom of where the sound is coming from, they find Skeletor behind everything and actually spring a trap set by Skeletor as uh, Skeletor and Beastman ambush He-Man and Stratos from behind. Um, obviously, we all know how these fights tend to turn out between He-Man and Skeletor or He-Man and really any evil force here. But uh, the book really is a fantastic read. It's so much fun, especially giving, given the fact that He-Man is encountering so many illusions and uh, the unique aspect of the way that uh, He-Man is set a trap for and he doesn't see through it at first. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed the book. It's actually a phenomenal read. Um, once again, the, the artwork in this book, similar to the way that uh, The Sword of Skeletor is done, the artwork is really great. I very much enjoy uh, the, this particular artist's uh, interpretation of He-Man, specifically because uh, just looking at the artwork here, for some reason or another, I'm reminded of uh, Roman ancient Roman sculptures, uh, specifically in the way that he, uh, this particular artist draws He-Man's hair, or even Stratos' hair. Um, it just reminds me of ancient Roman sculptures for some reason or another, and I really enjoyed the style. Um, as I had stated uh, last month on Chronicles, we are doing a giveaway uh, contest for Masters of the Universe, The Trap. And uh, I definitely want to go ahead and give you guys the details of that contest now. Uh, thanks for the idea to Chris Vint uh, for the idea of how the contest will be ran. What we're asking for here is that if you would like to win a copy of The Trap, we'd like you to come up with your own trap scenario for He-Man. We want you to write a trap, uh, an ingenuitive trap, something that's all your own, something that you think would actually fool He-Man. Um, some kind of trap, be it set by Skeletor, be it set by Hordak, any of the number of villains in the Masters of the Universe uh, galaxy, you're more than welcome to use. Uh, we want to see how ingenuitive you can be. Um, we want your entries turned in by no later than November 30th, 2010, and uh, Chris Vint and I will both be the judge serving as the judges on this particular contest. Uh, we will select a winner, and we will announce the winner on the December episode of Chronicles. Now, <clears throat> that said, uh, I do want to go ahead and let it be known that the copy of the trap that is up for winning, uh, it's not in perfect shape, as you would imagine. It is a used copy. But it's good enough, and I really think uh, you will enjoy it. Uh, you will have to pay no price on this. 
Uh, I am covering the cost of the shipping and handling for you. I will get it out to the winner uh, as soon as we get a winner selected and announced. Um, once again, uh, if you would like to win a copy of this book, simply write up a scenario or of a trap that Skeletor or Hordak or whomever would set for He-Man that would actually fool He-Man, something uh, ingenuitive, something that's brand new that we've never seen before, and uh, post it to the Pop Culture Network forums uh, for Masters of the Universe Chronicles. Post it there, we'll have a look at it, and uh, we will select a winner. Uh, be sure you do put, get your post in by November 30th. Uh, once again, I would like to thank Chris Vint and the Masters of the Universe Chronicles for allowing me the time uh, to review these books here. And uh, I would also like to thank the Pop Culture Network for letting us put on this great show. Uh, in the meantime, I am Mike Ficklin, also known as VaderSW1 on He-Man.org and on the Pop Culture Network forums. Good journey! What's up everyone, Alan Price here, and I am the co-host of Operation Retroshock alongside my very good friend and host of Masters of the Universe Chronicles, Chris Vint. On Operation Retroshock, we want you to remember the fun you had back when you were a kid. All the old TV shows and movies you used to be glued to and watch over and over again. We've already covered the likes of the unforgettable Back to the Future, Doctor Who, Ghostbusters and the legendary event that was WrestleMania 8. We also want you to feel the urge to dig out your old games consoles, blow out the years of dust from that cartridge and take a step back to simpler but arguably more enjoyable gaming times. So when you're done listening here on the Masters of the Universe Chronicles, why not come and join both Chris and myself on Operation Retroshock at our official home on popculturenetwork.com. You won't regret it. Welcome back from the break. I'm still your host, Chris Vint. Uh, as I've said numerous times, it rarely changes. And I've got a special interview lined up. Now, we've covered Filmation. We've covered Mike Young Productions. But there's an area in the middle we haven't covered. And this gentleman is certainly going to help me along the right track. So if you would please introduce yourself, sir. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm uh, delighted to be here. This is Jack Olesker. And uh, I guess I'm your middleman with uh, New Adventures of E-Man. I've always enjoyed talking to the middleman, though, so I have, you know, so, uh, <laughs> um, that's, Jack... Chris, that's, Chris, that's good, because some people want to eliminate the middleman, you know? <laughs> no, no, not me. I, I don't uh, agree with all these price comparison websites and everything. I want to go to the person direct, so that's that's always been my way. But, uh, Jack, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here, and thanks for clearing some time in your, your schedule uh, to come on. I really do appreciate it. Good. It's a delight for me to be here, Chris. Okay, do you mind if I crack on with the questions then, Jack? I'm really intrigued with some of your answers. No doubt you're going to um, completely blow my mind, figuratively speaking, because then the headsets will just fall off. Um, so are you ready to crack on then? Lay on, my friend. Okay, the first question I have for you is, how did you first get involved in bringing He-Man back to the airwaves? 
Well, um, many years ago, I worked with uh, Jean Chalapin uh, and Andy Hayward, who started Deke Entertainment, and um, we did a lot of different shows there. We did Mask and Jason the Wheeled Warriors and Inspector Gadget and the Care Bears. And um, a fellow that I was friends with there, uh, Mark Taylor, <clears throat> was their, uh, he was their chief financial officer, and Mark and I got to be uh, good buddies playing baseball on the on the entertainment league uh baseball team and uh when deke was uh, sold in a leveraged buyout uh to bear stearns mark went on and founded a company called Jetlag entertainment with john chalapin and um as i said we had a good relationship and <clears throat> one day i'm sitting at home and i get a call from mark and he says, Jack, Mattel's getting ready to uh, to reboot He-Man. They want to do the new adventures of He-Man. It's going to be something entirely different. And would you be interested in, in getting involved with it? And I said, oh, sure, absolutely I would. So um, he said, that's great. Uh, we want to start out by having you write a series Bible and write five episodes, the first five episodes, which Mattel is going to uh, string together five days in a row and do it as kind of like a, a little mini-series to, to test it. And so I said, oh, that's wonderful. I'll be delighted to do that. <clears throat> so he said, the only catch is that you have to write the series Bible in two weeks and you have to write the five episodes in three weeks. <laughs> so so I said not a problem I've I've got a reputation I guess in the industry after having written over a thousand episodes of television in in over 30 years uh, I've got a reputation reputation for being pretty fast so I did pound that out the original series bible was uh, was 96 pages and then I pounded out those uh those five uh, episodes from story springboard through uh, to treatment and outline and then a couple of revisions on each uh, each one of those 32 page scripts and uh, Mattel liked them a lot and we went into uh, to production on doing the 12 episodes and then um, what Mattel did that I thought was kind of clever was they premiered it at the MGM theater in Culver City California and I had no idea Chris what what I was in for and they wanted me to come there and I walk in and there's 1500 screaming kids that are oh. in this <laughs> are in this theater and they tablets on standby were they I'm telling you, <laughs> and uh, and they had a live action He Man and Skeletor up on the stage, and and they're battling a little bit with their swords, and then they they ran the five episodes which we bridged together uh, so that it could be aired as a movie, and the kids just went absolutely crazy, and um, <clears throat> we got the call about a week later from Mattel that we were go and that they were going to do uh, 65 episodes. And I ended up writing 37 episodes. And gosh, I'm a little reluctant to say this, but I wrote 37 episodes in a space of 17 weeks. And... Um, and then I story edited uh, uh, quite a, a large block of of the remaining episodes. And I always say, Chris, that those those seventeen uh, those thirty seven episodes that I that I did in seventeen weeks, it was sort of like. Um, when I was in the Air Force, I was a helicopter air rescue medic, and we had a survival training camp that we went through. And it's kind of the same thing. I'm glad I went through it, but I sure wouldn't want to go through it again. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you any money whenever you were younger, you were not that fast with your homework. 
Well, you're right about that. (laughs) Except when it came to writing and composition, I suppose. (laughs) Fantastic, fantastic. So um, do you have a favorite memory from working on the New Adventure series? Uh, You know, I'll tell you, I I enjoyed all of the elements of it, but I really have to say that that one of the great joys was working uh, with the team that we had, Mark Taylor at Jetlag, uh, one of the the industry's real gentlemen. Of course, he went on to become uh, uh, executive vice president and general manager of Nickelodeon Animation uh, out in in, uh, Burbank, California, and Mark has been there for, oh gosh, I think 50 15 years now and uh, uh, really launched uh, Nickelodeon. Uh, so he was a great guy. We had a tremendous amount of laughs. And the other thing, and I'll be frank about it, Chris, you know, I know that Maddie, you know, that Mattel gets gets a lot of heat. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an active member on HeMan.org. But I got to tell you, you know, my experience with Mattel was absolutely golden. And I had written a number of series uh, for them and developed a number of series for them uh, before I did uh, New Adventures of He-Man. But the people that I worked there, uh, Karen Lee Brown, uh, Deborah Galliani, just amazing executives who were uh, who were tremendously uh, respectful of writers, gave me a great amount of latitude, were very, very encouraging. Their comments were always constructive, and I just uh, found it an, an overall wonderful experience. So, you know, you know, obviously, you know when you when you're working with He-Man, Skeletor, and and, and these classic uh, characters, uh, there's a joy in there. Um, and then the executives that I worked with uh, at Mattel, and as I said at Jetlag, were just wonderful. And then uh, the final thing, of course, uh, and the most important thing for me is just to see smiles on the faces of children. You know, that's uh, that's the ultimate joy for me. Brilliant, brilliant. Couldn't have said it better myself. So, um, what prompted the decision to set the show in such a different setting than the original series? You know, bringing it into space and leaving behind Eternia and almost the original cast of characters. You know, it's an interesting question, Chris. And uh, you know, obviously, Mattel uh, took a lot of heat on it. Um, and and I'll preface it by saying that I think it would have had a good chance of success. If Mattel would have prepped those uh, those loyal Masters of the Universe fans and given them a sense of what was coming and and told them, look, we're going to pull these characters away from uh, from their family and their friends and their adventures, and we're going to take them to a new time and place, but they're going to come back at some point in the future. Um, and of course, hindsight is always uh, 2020, and they didn't do that, regrettably. So I think a lot of loyal uh, Masters uh, fans were very disenfranchised when all of a sudden, boom, you know, what is this? We're gone, you know. <laughs> So, um, but Mattel, in in Mattel's defense, I will say that it was a business decision, and it was entirely their decision, by the way. They presented it to me as a fait accompli. Um, It was entirely their decision. And you have to understand that there is a difference between being a fan and running a toy business. You know, Mattel is not the number one uh, toy manufacturer in the world because they don't know what they're doing. Um, so what they what they finally came to the conclusion was that the the Masters of the Universe franchise had pretty much run 
its distance as far as toy figure sales. And of course, Mattel is driven by toy, uh, by toy figures. <clears throat> and, you know, animation entertainment is a vehicle to drive the toy sales for them. Of course, you need great story in order to do that as well. But they realized, and let's be realistic, how many how many uh, He-Mans, how many Skeletors, how many She-Ra action figures can you really accumulate? Uh, you know, it had reached the saturation level. So what Mattel's idea was, and I think they had a good idea, was to take He-Man and Skeletor and move them completely away from where they were to, an, uh, to a distant uh, universe, a distant stage, and launch an entirely new line of action figures. And I think that was a good idea. I'll also end uh, answering that question by telling you that, you know, I'm, I'm very active on He-Man.org. <laughs> and one of the questions that, that I always see is people say, well, you know, we can't believe that He-Man would leave his family, would leave his friends, would leave, you know, everything that he knows there. You know what, Chris? Our, our courageous men and women who serve in the military of, of countries all over the world make that sacrifice on a daily basis. They leave behind family. They leave behind friends. They leave behind their children in order to go out and uh, to, to do service and to protect our freedoms and liberties. And I think that He-Man making this decision to leave them rather than it being something that he wouldn't do, I think it's precisely what he would do. And I would be surprised if he would say, if somebody told them, told him, He-Man, the future of the universe and an entire people depends on you, how could he not rise to that challenge and still be He-Man? That's very true. It's almost like saying the, ch the parents, you know, the children fl um, flee the coop at uh, a certain age so at some stage you know Adam's not going to stay in the royal palace for the rest of his life and decide right. I'll just stay here and kick up my shoes and just sit <laughs> back and you know have myself you know some of this and some of that you know everyone yeah. would leave their house so um, it's kind of his maturity almost by going and meeting new people and having different you know uh, quests and having different friendships and things like that as we all do in life Right, and this is a warrior, and he's been told, he's a defender uh, uh, of the good, obviously, and he's being told that, that an entire people and that the future uh, depends on him. How can he not answer that call, you know? True, true. <clears throat> so you, you mentioned there uh, about Mattel, so just how much influence did Mattel have on the storylines and the shows, you know, were there certain mandates uh, that were enforced by Mattel, like you have to put a certain character or in a vehicle in an episode to promote the toys? Well, here's what happens, Chris. When when I'm called in to develop a series, and you know, I've uh, in, in a 30-year career, I've I've worked on many different series. You know, uh, Haim Saban, uh, one of my oldest and dearest friends in the industry. In fact, Haim and I were just exchanging uh, emails uh, uh, last week. I don't know if you're aware, but he uh, he just bought back Power Rangers, and uh, I was I was congratulating him about that. You know, he called me in to develop uh, the original series Bible on uh, Power Rangers. My 
Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, uh, which went, of course, through uh, through many revisions. Um, but you know, I've worked with Heim and with American Greetings and Mattel and Hasbro, and worked on Mask. And what happens when you're developing a series, rather <clears throat> than coming in? midpoint when it's already up and running and I've been in that position as well but when you're coming in at the beginning the toy manufacturer makes a complete presentation of the toy line to you and <laughs> what you'll see is fairly developed prototypes um, and they will uh, show you one figure at a time and they'll give you a, a little bit of a history on, on who they are um, and this is precisely what Mattel did to me it did with me uh, maybe to me I don't know um, <laughs> but, but they uh, they presented all of those characters uh, that uh, that you see, Optic and uh, and, and Slushhead and Flog and and all of those characters, and then um, they say, "Okay, Jack, now do that which you know how to do, which is create a world for them to live in." And I will tell you that they did not give me um, much background on on the characters. You know, obviously they said Flipshot, you know, uh, will we'll fly, he's a pilot. Uh, but they gave me very little background on it, and they wanted me to run with it. So they gave me that direction. They gave me the basic... Uh, conflict that was going on on Primus that uh, the mutants were were invading, but they left a lot of that development up to me. It was my decision to have uh, a Skeletor um, align himself with the, with the mutants and kind of you know play the uh, the oaf rather than revealing his hand that uh, that he wanted to uh, to take over you know it's it's a different situation than he had on uh, on Eternia because here he was not in charge of his army here he was walking into a situation where the mutants were already well established and they had their own troops and you know you can't just all of a sudden come in as the new kid on the block and and, uh, and try to take over. So uh, that they get the answer. Uh, a short answer uh, is that they gave me a tremendous amount of latitude, and uh, you know I was able to develop it uh, uh, pretty much to the degree that I that I chose. Okay, superb. Um, were there any episodes or concepts uh, which you wanted to bring into season one that were blocked or significantly changed by Mattel? And if so, what was the reasoning behind it? Uh, one other thing, I'll, I'll jump back to the question that I just answered, by the way, and a number okay. of people have asked this question. They've said, gee, Jack, you know, how come this character, uh, very little was seen of him until later on in the show? And uh, the answer to that, it's an interesting answer, is that um, Mattel created two waves of characters and uh, you know Flag and Slushhead uh, and your primary mutants were were in that first wave and the second wave Optic uh, you know being uh, one example uh, those characters were not going to be released until halfway through the series so what they said was look if you want to use those characters once in a while in an episode that's fine but because they're not going to be in the stores we would appreciate if you highlight those figures that are going to be in the stores and I felt that was a reasonable request and oh, uh, yes. and I was happy to go along with that you know um, in answer <clears throat> to your question there was uh, there was never a single episode that Mattel told me you can't run it 
there was never a single time that Mattel said, um, no, we don't want this in here, uh, kill this scene, lose it entirely, and do it this way. And I will, you know, I'll say, <coughs> excuse me, I'll say perhaps a bit immodestly that, you know, when you've had a long career, and I've been very blessed to, uh, to, to have written, you know, literally over a thousand episodes of television, you get to the point that hopefully you develop a level of skill. Um, and I think that Mattel respected that. I had done a good job for them in the past. And, you know, as I said, uh, they, they gave me a lot of latitude. So I like that. You know, I will say that there were, there were uh, certainly a couple of times that uh, I would have liked to have had Krita in certain situations that, uh, let's say, Mattel I knew would not approve of. But I, I, res I resisted that impulse, <laughs> impulse you know. <laughs> Okay. She, she was one of my favorite characters, by the way. I liked I liked Krita quite a bit. <laughs> okay. Okay. So Castle Grayskull seems to be pretty absent in the new adventure show. We don't see it in the original episode and right. is eliminated from He Man's traditional transformation speech and also, you know, from the background. So the original mini comics included with the figures do include Castle Grayskull in the origin story. Mm -hmm. But in those the castle is referred into energy to power the Starship Eternia. Was there a conscious decision in place for the new adventures to move the power away from the castle and, and eliminate it from the continuity? Yeah, you know, first of all, uh, let me preface that by saying, um, and, you know, I'm sorry to show my ignorance here, but <laughs> I really was not aware of the existence of the mini comics until I went on He-Man.org. So, uh, you know, so I knew nothing about them. Uh, you know, obviously I was delighted to, to find out about it. It was like, mm -hmm. wow, it's like going into a gold mine and you see a gold vein. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> and, but I really knew nothing about them. So I can't speak to what was in there. Um, okay. what I, what I will say is that, yes, it was a conscious effort on my part to move him away from Grayskull um, and to even change his uh, his tagline, uh, you know, by the power of Grayskull, um, because I felt that this was his power source and he moved, um, you know, an exponential distance and time away from that power source. So it would seem to me that it didn't make sense to hark back to something that was that far, far away from him. Now, also, I, you know, taking that one step further, it's been correctly pointed out by a number of fans that when He-Man was on um, Eternia, that he was extremely powerful. My gosh, in, in one episode, he, he, list, he lifted uh, Castle Grayskull. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, was certainly uh, this physically uh, powerful character. And that when we moved uh, to Primus, that it became more of sci-fi and certainly more of his intellect. And again, this was uh, something that I did consciously. Um, I wanted to 
who try to take it in a little different direction. My feeling is, uh, and you know, there's certainly people that can argue the the opposite point, and I respect their opinion uh, that you want continuity, that you don't want uh, your characters to change. But my feeling is these are these are real living characters, and people change, you know, people uh, uh, grow. And I think what he found out on Primus was being so far away from his power source. Now he had to think a little bit more with his intellect uh, than he did before with uh, simply with his muscles. So that was uh, one of the reasons that I, uh, that I chose to go in that direction. Okay. Well, you say that you didn't know a great deal about the mini-comics, you know, and stuff. So, in the first issue, Prince Adam changes into He-Man in front of Skeletor, eliminating the secret identity plot device. Uh, Uh Why was the decision made to keep this in the show? Because it seems like Skeletor would have put two and two together when both Adam and He-Man arrived in Primus at the same time. Uh, I agree with you. And, um, you know, one thing that I never do is I never defend indefensible positions. And uh, I agree with you. I think in retrospect, and again, you know, hindsight's being 2020, uh, I, I think that uh, that Adam should have been eliminated. I think there was no point to it. And, uh, you know, Skeletor uh, may be a lot of things, but he's not a fool. So <laughs> I agree that he would have put that together. And I don't think it really served um, a plot purpose. I think he, he could have just been He-Man there. Uh, the other thing that uh, that I'll answer um, uh, about what I would have done differently, and I had somebody um, on HeMan.org uh, asked me a really good question. They said, Jack, if you had it all uh, to do over again, uh, what would you do different? And the one thing that I think I would have done different is I would have brought Battle Cat uh, along to, uh, to Primus. Um, I think that could have opened up a lot of great storylines. I think, um, you know, Battle Cat could have served some great uh, dramatic purposes and uh, open up the action and the adventure. And, and that's something that, uh, that I think is regrettable. And frankly, I think if I had mentioned it uh, to Mattel at the time, I think they would have been uh, open and amenable to that. You could have had Battle Cat action figure with some cat food beside him, perhaps? Uh, there you go. That's what I'm talking about. And, and having Krita, uh, you know, whip her, her whip at him once in a while. <laughs> as, as it stands, she only does that at Skeletor. You know, I love, speaking about Krita, you know, I joke about her, but I, I really love that character. And what I like about her and what I've always done in almost everything that I've ever been involved with, I mean, you go back to the Power Rangers with the Pink Ranger and the Yellow Ranger, I am drawn to projects and I like to create characters. Uh, Obviously, the Pink Ranger and the Yellow Ranger existed before I was involved with it, but I like to create characters that are powerful females. And I think that that's real important because... You know, uh, Chris, there's a a void, uh, you know, Powerpuff Girls aside, there's a void of of uh, entertainment for children that have uh, empowered female characters. And, you know, certainly He-Man has a rich history of, uh, of powerful female characters, Tila and the Sorceress and, and She-Ra, of course. So, uh, you know, it was a natural for me to, uh, to uh, kind of carry that on with, uh, with a, a kind of a wicked character. Um, but I think it's real important that, uh, that girls um, have uh, role models that they can look to. You know, yeah. you ask my, you ask my uh, eight-year-old daughter, Zoe, 
Joey, what can girls do? And she'll tell you, Daddy, girls can do anything that boys can do. And I think it's important for girls to have that real positive self-image. Oh, totally agree. Totally agree with you. So you've stated before that despite what the fans may think, Primus is not Eternia. But if Primus isn't Eternia, then what is it? Well, you know, there's uh, there's a whole long thread on He-Man.org in the New Adventures of He-Man section, uh, and it's entitled Primus Revealed. And um, we had so much fun with it. I think there's like 5,000 uh, uh, views on it. And I ran a little bit of a contest for, for folks to, to guess uh, what Primus is. And um, I don't know if I should reveal it. Well, I guess I will because it's kind <laughs> of fun. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a very spiritual guy, uh, Chris, as most people can tell you. And um, I really constructed Primus to be heaven. And okay. uh, so, so that's what it was. I never, uh, you know, I never um, beat anybody over the head about it, and I don't like to get into, you know, theological uh, debates or anything. But it certainly um, gave me, not necessarily from a theological standpoint, but from a story standpoint, it gave me a wonderful structure to construct. Um, a lot of stories out of because, you know, and I don't want to get too theological, but, you know, if you study scripture, you know that there there was this battle in, in Revelations where, uh, you know, the dark side was led uh, in a revolt against uh, all of the angels in heaven. And uh, that's a good, uh, good storyline that certainly has been mined by, um, by Star Wars. So, you know, the, you know, you have the dark side there and, and you have the force. Uh, so that was something that worked very, very well for me. And, uh, you know, you, you look at the Guardians, the Galactic Guardians, you know, you can, uh, you can figure that uh, they're the disciples. And you look at Master Sebrian, well, you know, you can... You can fill in the blanks pretty well. <laughs> and Skeletor, I don't think I need to give you any footnotes on, <laughs> on who no. he is, you know. So, so that was uh, that was what my thinking was there, and I had a lot of fun doing it, and I had a lot of fun holding it um, uh, as as a secret for many many years. So it was fun. Okay. Now this next question will be like asking a parent to choose their favorite children. Uh -oh. uh, so do you have a favorite episode and if so why? And if you can't pick one, I'll allow you to pick five. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll give you two um, <laughs> okay. that, that are my favorite. Running of the Herd was, uh, was a great episode. I felt that there was so much uh, depth in it and drama and um, emotion and um, it was it was a visceral episode for me and um, I, I, I really uh, really enjoyed uh, doing that episode uh, the other one that I enjoyed um, and you got to remember, it's been a few years, so I'm, I'm not sure if I remember the title, but I think it was Six Ways to Sundown. Um, and uh, it, what I liked about that episode, uh, Akira Kurosawa is one of my favorite directors, uh, brilliant uh, director um, who wrote The Seven Samurai and um, Rain and a number, of, uh, a number of other films. He was also an uncredited director on Tora, Tora, Tora. And um, he also uh, directed a wonderful film called Rashomon. And Rashomon is a story that um, talks about um, 
let's say it's a crime, a crime from the point of view of a number of different characters, the perpetrator, the victim, a number of the perpetrators, and it shows each of their different points of view. And uh, Six Ways to Sundown was kind of a send-up uh, of that. So I, I really enjoyed doing that. Steve Taggart um, wrote a wonderful episode in which uh, Tila came to visit uh, He-Man because He-Man was a little homesick. And I thought that was a, a, a brilliant stroke that she did. So uh, so that was another episode. But, you know, I I enjoyed every single one of them. I, I put my heart and my passion into uh, into all of them and into all that I do. Okay, so obviously, you know, we're talking about favorite episodes. So was there a particular character that you enjoyed writing more than others? Or were there any characters you wanted to do more with, but uh, for some reason you couldn't? Well, you know, look, I, I, I love Slushhead. You know, I just, <laughs> I, I absolutely love Slushhead. Mark Taylor and I had so much fun with Slushhead. I mean, we had songs we made up, you know, take me back to the quagmire swamp, you know. And <laughs> I, I mean, we had so much fun with this guy, dressing him up in a tuxedo and, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the bride of Slushhead. And, you know, we, we just had a lot of fun with him. He, he was a fun, fun character. Flag was good because, uh, you know, I like, uh, I, 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 I like villains, you know. I like villains a lot. Um, so, you know he was he was fun for me um uh as always like crit a lot because you know she was a strong character um he-Man uh, was was fun for me because uh, you know he he changed and uh, and he went through a metamorphosis and uh, I felt he went through a growth and I enjoyed that. Um, Skeletor, listen, uh, I don't have to tell you, Chris. I took a lot of heat uh, over the years because. Uh, I made him uh, a little Jokerish and uh, and and, uh, and um, comical. Uh, I will I will tell everybody categorically. I had nothing to do with Skeletor's eyes. Okay. <laughs> and I also I also had nothing to do with the scientists. Okay. So I agree. The scientists. If I if I could go back and cut them, I'd do it in a heartbeat. But you know, Skeletor. My feeling was that again. I hark back to what I said before. Characters grow and. And let's face it, you know, when, when he was back in Eternia, he was, if He-Man was the most powerful man in the universe, the Skeletor was the most wicked creature in the universe. Mm -hmm. So how much more can you do without doing the same thing over and over and over again? So I wanted to take it in, uh, in a little different direction. The people that liked Skeletor love him, okay? And, you know, I get emails and, and private messages about how much they liked him and what I did with him. But the people that don't, uh, you know, are purists that, that hold on to wanting their character to be the way that, th that they were for all time. Um, and I respect that, and I understand that. But, you know, <clears throat> there's a wonderful uh, uh, film franchise, uh, the Rocky Balboa uh, stories. And, hey, yo, Rocky uh, Balboa, you know. Uh, yo, 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 Adrian, <laughs> I love you. So, and I'm a huge fan of, of that franchise. And, you know, no question in, in the first Rocky film, Clubber, uh, not Clubber Lang, um, uh, Apollo Creed, uh, played brilliantly by Carl Weathers, is, this is the ultimate villain this guy is heartless he's he's only concerned about the money he's only concerned of, of beating up on rocky and he's this terrible guy and there is a moment 
of about 13 seconds when Apollo is knocking Rocky down for the 10th time and he's celebrating, his arms are up over his head and the fight is over and he turns and he sees Rocky Balboa starting to get up off of the, the mat. And you have to look at this scene. There is a moment on Carl Weathers where his shoulders drop Yes. And Apollo Creed looks at this guy and he closes his eyes. It's like he doesn't want him to get up. And yeah. in that moment, this character, who had been a terrible character throughout the entire film, all of a sudden changed. And you and a lot of people missed it, but you realized at some point that this guy was going to end up being a hero. And of course, we didn't realize we didn't have that come to fruition until Rocky three, when they, you know, when they went up against Clubber Lang. But um, that was where I was taking it uh, with Skeletor. Uh, so much had been done brilliantly by guys like, uh, you know, Larry and, 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 and Mike Straczynski and, and, and Robbie London and, and all of uh, the, the brilliant uh, uh, filmation writers. And I, I mean that in all honesty, brilliant, towering uh, 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 writers. But how much can you do of the same thing over and over again? So that was why I took him in that kind of a comical direction, Chris. That's that's perfectly fine uh, for me it seems to be that everyone has different tastes so it's all it's, if we all just like the same thing it's all going to be pretty boring in the long run everyone has different tastes you know like some people would like Skeletor like that some people don't that's fine everyone's entitled to their opinion but you did you know and the crew that you work with did what they thought was right for the show and you know I applaud you for that because you know it's a case of you've tried to do, it's tried to be done differently and it's the same with like say Batman's or say Power Rangers for example it's evolved and it's got different over the years you know but it still has its core roots and it still has its core villains and heroes you know you still have the Power Rangers you still have this you still have that you know and then He-Man you still have He-Man you still have Skeletor you have Tila who appears you know and that kind of thing so for me it's just a case of everyone's entitled to opinion you've done what you've you, you thought was Right at the time, you know, like, and as you've said, you know, like, if you could go back and change a couple of things, you would, and th that's, uh, that's unfortunately where hindsight comes in and is a bit of a pain in the proverbial, so it is. Right, right, and and I agree with you, and, and again, you know, in defense of of all of the uh, vitriol and, and real anger uh, when, uh, when uh, New Adventures came out, I understand it. You know, I, I understand it because uh, it just came from out of nowhere. And I do think that if, uh, if they had set it up a little bit differently, you know, I had planned in season two. Uh, to oh, bring... don't, don't, don't default anything for season two. That's the next okay, question. Okay, okay. That's the next question. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think if they had set it up a little bit differently and, and, and gave everybody a heads up rather than just dumping it on everybody, I think it would have had a better chance of, of doing well. And I'll tell you the proof of that, Chris. Uh, as you know, uh, BCI uh, released the, uh, the New Adventures of He-Man uh, collection of all 65 episodes. And I'll tell you, um, in the beginning, there were a number of fans who said, oh, I'm not even going to watch it. I can't stand it. And some other fans were saying, oh, give it a chance. And what happened was, uh, and I was so 
so thrilled after all this time to see this. A lot of fans gave it a second shot. And some said, no, it's just not for me. I can't get my hands around it. Some really actually said, you know, it stands on its own. It's a separate adventure. And I think that, I forget which fan said it, but that I think is the best description of it. Yes, it's part of canon, uh, but it is a separate adventure that He-Man goes on. Um, and some fans really came to, uh, to like it quite a bit. So I'm glad that in the expanse of time that, uh, you know, uh, tempers uh, and disappointment has ebbed a little bit. And a lot of fans uh, gave it a second shot. But I think a lot of that could have been assuaged if, um, if uh, Mattel, uh, and again, I don't fault them, but if, if they had uh, launched it differently, I think it would have had a better uh, chance uh, at, at becoming uh, really successful. And one thing that I'll, that I'll add, by the way, um, sometimes you'll have fans say, oh, you know, uh, big deal, new adventures, it only lasted one season. Well, let's remember that that one season was 65 episodes. And a Saturday morning cartoon runs a season that's 13 episodes. So what you've really got is um, you've really got uh, uh, five seasons of, uh, of 13 episodes. So uh, don't be so quick to say, oh, it only ran for one season. <laughs> ran for 65 episodes, guys. <laughs> so you briefly touched on there about um, season two. So um, you obviously would have a plan in place for future seasons, I would imagine. Could you tell us where the story would have gone had the show continued? Yeah, and gosh, it's one of, um, you know, I don't have too many things in, uh, in my long career that I regret. Um, but I'll tell you, one of the things that I really regret is that we didn't get that season two. Because I think it would have been killer, and I think the show would have still been running. Um, and what I had wanted to do was have He-Man become successful on Primus and he puts down uh, the, the mutants and in his absence in Eternia in this vacuum, in this void that was left by him not being there a crisis would come about and uh, Randor and Marlena would not be able to handle it and in that absence of power um, I saw the sorceress and Tila and Shira forming a tripartite uh, um, ruling government, and they would be unable to handle it. And of course, you know, I, I'm sure the you know it's easy to fill in the blanks that the horde would be in, involved. But what I saw happening, and it stunned a lot of fans when I said this, is that uh, Man at Arms would step up and Duncan would exile um, the three ladies and take over control uh, for himself. And some of the fans uh, were understandably livid when I said this. And I said, <laughs> no, I said, no, I am not saying that he's turning evil. And I want to make that real clear. I'm not saying that he's turning evil. What I'm saying is that as a devoted person and as He-Man's second in charge, he realizes that he must do something that is difficult for him to do, but is in the interest of Eternia. And once he gets involved in it, 
then, as Lord Acton once said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He becomes corrupted himself, and he imprisons uh, his king and queen, and He-Man comes back to this and sees the situation, and Skeletor comes back with some of the mutants, and uh, he, Skeletor, and, and his crew align uh, with, with our classic villains uh, on the planet, and um, then it would be up to He-Man to wrest control back and to reestablish uh, uh, stability. And, of course, there would come uh, a scene, anybody that's... Uh, that's seen the film, uh, classic David Lean film, uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. Uh, there's a wonderful moment with Alec Guinness who helps the Japanese build this bridge across the river and he gets caught up in it and finally he realizes after the bridge is, is built and, and the train is coming across, he realizes, my gosh, you know, I've helped the Japanese, my, my, my enemies. And he says, what have I done? And I wanted to have that kind of a moment, that kind of an epiphany uh, for, for Duncan to realize uh, what he had done, and I thought that would have been a uh, an interesting uh, storyline for season two. That would have been awesome. I'm just sitting here like I'm a, I'll have to pick my job off the ground if I'm honest, <laughs> because you know, like I, I would never have thought of that. But that that just you know, obviously he man coming back and you know, kind of saying, "Look what you've turned into. You've turned into the one thing you swore, you know, like." against you know we fought against this and you're you've corrupted yourself you know you've right. corrupted my my mother my father you know and that's right. probably when I, that's just that's fantastic that's right fantastic. and i wanted to bring back uh I wanted to bring back Drissy from uh, from you know his his kind of uh, love interest from uh, from Primus, and I thought you know boy we can even get some uh, some storylines going on where you know Shira doesn't approve of her, and you know there there could have been a lot of um, of interesting depth, and um, I I would have liked to have done uh, that season, Chris. That's that's one of the few regrets that I have uh, in my career is that we didn't get an opportunity to do that you know fantastic so it's established that you were a fan of the original filmation series um, but did you happen to check out in 2002 the Mike Young production uh, Master of the Universe cartoon and if so what were your thoughts on it you know, uh, I'm sorry, but it's a short answer. But no, I didn't. Uh, it was not from uh, from want of doing it. But you know, my my um, <laughs> people say, Jack, what are you doing now? You know, and uh, the answer is right now I've got two PBS series in development. I'm I'm directing and producing a a uh, documentary for PBS um, in about uh, two weeks from now. I just finished shooting two of them in the Bahamas over Christmas, and I've got a feature a feature film. And a sitcom that uh, that we're developing. So the the so you're not busy is, at all then. No. Yeah, and, and I've got three kids. You know, so, so sometimes I walk in at the end of the day, Chris, and they turn to my <laughs> to my wife and they say, "Mommy, who's this strange man with the beard coming into?" <laughs> So I, I always say, yeah, that's what I need is one more thing that I love. So I, I know I would have enjoyed watching the series, but I just I don't have a lot of uh, of leisure time in my life. Okay, fantastic. Well, uh, well, it's something that you can maybe look on whenever you've, you're you not as busy as you are whenever you have some free time. Um, I'm sure somebody, some kind soul, maybe myself, will uh, send you a DVD or something so you can watch a few of them and see what you think of them. But uh, there was rumours that had the 2000 show continued, some new adventures aspects um, could have been folded in. Um, 
if you had seen, you know, like, what would be your take on that? Uh, what concepts or characters do you think would you have made sense to be involved in that? You, you know, uh, good question, Chris. I had um, a couple of fans, uh, as as you probably know, um, uh, Optic has come out uh, as a character from uh, from the uh, four. You horses. don't even have these questions, but you seem to know what I'm going to ask you next. <laughs> well, you know what? It's not my first time at the dance, okay? So, so, um, so, you know, a couple of fans had emailed me and said, Jack, my gosh, what do you think? Look what they're doing to your Optic. They're changing his bio, and they're going in this whole different direction, and they're changing new adventures what do you think what do you think what do you think well you know what here's what i think what i think is anything that continues to create interest for the masters of the universe is a good thing um if, if toy guru or or somebody over at uh, at mattel wants to take something i've done and they want to turn it around and man if it helps keep uh, excitement and interest in a franchise boy i'm just absolutely thrilled so you know go for it i think there were Oh, excuse me. I think there are a lot of um, really fun elements on Primus. I think there were, you know, the mutants, I think were were great. I think that the Gleanons and the Mites could have uh, could have been fabulous coming through a wormhole into Eternia. And uh, you know who they would have aligned themselves with. So um, I, I think there were certainly lots of elements uh, that we saw in New Adventures uh, that I don't want to say could be co-opted, but I think that could be infused um, into, uh, in, into the classic. And why not? You know, if you can take something uh, that's uh, that's been done in another area and it worked and it was good and fans like it man have at it you know <laughs> have you actually seen the figure uh, you know I have I've seen it on um, I've seen it on uh, he-man.org uh, a bunch of the fans uh, posted it I think it's absolutely fabulous I'm in love with it uh, somebody <laughs> somebody posted uh, the figure and of course that you know that that single eyeball is like so prominent on top of his yeah. head and then the other one was down at his feet uh, so the other colored one so I said you know what you should have is a caption there where he says I'm optic I'll keep an eye out for you <laughs> <laughs> Um, did you actually manage to read the the bio that they have on the back of it at all? Uh, you or... know, I didn't. I didn't uh, okay. get to that. Would, I would you like read... me to? Would you like me to read it to you? I'd, I would like to I'd get. I'd love it. Go ahead. Okay. So optics real name is pronounced through a series of blinks. Okay. <laughs> so a space mutant from the foggy polar region of the pa planet Denebria, optics spyball eyeball <laughs> is. Uh, is specially adapted to see through the dense Denebrian fog of his home world, making him an, an ideal spy. He carries a photon neutralizer, which was made of one of the most feared, which sorry, which has made him one of the most feared of the space mutants in the tri-solar system. Optic aligned himself with Skeletor shortly after the Lord of Destruction defeated Hordak and turned his ambition to the Horde Empire, forming a coalition of mutants and outcasts to conquer the universe. Optic serves Skeletor by keeping an eye on He-Man and all of the galactic protectors of the planet Primus. Your thoughts? Okay, well, you know, first of all, um, the first half of that is uh, very faithful 
to uh, the optic that I knew and loved um, in New Adventures. Uh, the second half, once you start talking about the Horde, um, you know, obviously that's, that's all um, uh, been uh, added on and changed around uh, to kind of have him fit in. And, hey, I'm fine with it. You know, um, you know I, I, I've been around for a long time, Chris, and you don't survive this long in this industry because you think, <laughs> you know, you think your words are chiseled in granite. So, you know, somebody wants to take something that I've done and, uh, and they say, hey, there's some good elements in here. Uh, I want to twist it around a little bit. I, I don't have a problem with, uh, with doing a little bit of uh, revisionist history. I, I think uh, whoever uh, wrote that bio up, uh, I think, I think did a really nice job with it. Uh, kudos to them. Fantastic. So, um, obviously, you've worked in the new adventures. That's why we're here. So, if He-Man ever returned to the airwaves, what kind of show would you like to see? Well, I would. Uh, I think it goes without saying that I'd like to see him uh, come back uh, to. Um, I, I'd like to do season two that I wanted to do. I, my heart, of course, uh, rests with uh, New Adventures. I know that it, uh, it was not um, tremendously popular at the time that it came out, but again, I think that that's for a lot of the reasons uh, that we've talked about. Um, but I would like to see him come back to, uh, to Eternia, and I will say one thing for the, for the fans out there that didn't like Skeletor uh, being this comic, uh, I can tell you for sure that if he ever did come back from Primus and he came back to Eternia, you can bet that it would be the old Skeletor because he would be back in charge and he would be back at the top. There are reasons why you do things. You don't just pull a rabbit out of a hat and decide one day all of a sudden, okay, I'm going to make Skeletor comical. There, <laughs> there were reasons for that. He, if he had come in there and been the Skeletor that he was uh, from, from, from Masters of the Universe, he would have come in, you know, strutting his stuff, trying to take over, and he's going to walk headlong into, into uh, starships that are commanded by a mutant uh, um, uh, army, and he's going to get blown away. So he had to take a change in personality in order to achieve what he wanted to do. Having achieved that, once he came back to, uh, to his homeland, he certainly, in my mind, would revert to the Skeletor of old. Okay. So, obviously, um, with you saying that you're, uh, you post on the HeMan.org messenger board, what do you think of the HeMan fans, and are you surprised many years later, like we are doing now, people are still talking about it? Uh, you know, I'm surprised and delighted. And I've said in, um, in, in many different areas, you know, I don't just hang out in, in the New Adventures uh, uh, forum. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I go into the collector's forum. Sometimes I'm just lurking there because I'm not a collector and I want to learn about that entire world. Um, I'm in the uh, other discussions forum. There's, there's a great section in uh, heman.org, uh, not for children, but it's uh, the Tar Swamp where, you know, we talk about uh, religion and about power. Politics and, and, and very adult subjects. And I have posted in many of those uh, places saying that, in my opinion, you know, the He Man fans, uh, whether they like uh, new adventures or not, are articulate by and large, intelligent. 
They are engaging. There's thought-provoking conversations uh, that go on with with different points of view. And by and large, I find there to be you know really civil interaction. Certainly, passionately held positions and will challenge you when they feel one way. Um, but what I find that's very refreshing is that. By and large, if you can present a logical argument, uh, most of the fans there are willing to, if not only uh, give you the respect of expressing your opinion and having it, even though it may be different from theirs, uh, some of them are even uh, willing to come around and say, hey, you know, I, I never looked at it that way. So I found it to be a wonderful uh, and enriching experience, Chris. And, you know, every once in a while, I have somebody uh, send me a nice little note and they'll say, oh, Jack, you know, we're so grateful that that you're here on heman.org let me tell you i'm the one that's grateful to be able to be on heman.org you know for a writer chris when when you know think about writing a, a thousand episodes of television and i've written six novels that have been published in 18 films you know when you're doing that work you're largely alone in a room with your computer or years ago with your typewriter and it's just you and the keyboard so it's not like a singer uh, or a stage performer where you get that instant feedback from fans who like you or who dislike you um, so for me to be able to go on to heman.org and get that kind of feedback, including the negative feedback, and I'll tell you, I learn from that. I, I know what I do right. I want to know what I do wrong because that's how you <laughs> improve. So for me to get that kind of feedback, I feel like I'm the one that's very fortunate to be on heman.org, and I've been made to feel very welcome there. Fantastic. So with the penultimate question here, and uh, I'd be very surprised if you said no. Are you happy that you were part of the show? Oh, it was uh, it was one of the great experiences of my life. I mean, sixty five episodes, you know, and you know, for a writer to be able to write thirty seven of the episodes that you've written the series bible for, and um, and to story edit uh, many of the remaining ones. And my gosh, Chris, I was involved with the storyboards. Mark and I would go through the storyboards, and we would make changes, and uh, you know, I, I would draw. All my little stick people. I remember we had one fella. <laughs> we had one fella from KKCND uh, Animation Studio. His name was Tarada. He was one of the uh, one of the the directors over at the studio, and he came over with this with this uh, beautiful Japanese girl who was his translator. And we're going through the storyboards, and I'm making some changes, you know, with my little stick people. And he says something to his translator, and she like covers her mouth and giggles a little. And I said, "What did Tarada san say?" And she says, "Oh no, no, Mr. Lesker." I said, "No, you can't." laugh and not tell me what she said, you know. So she thinks about it for a second and she said, Tarata-san watched you do those figures the way that you drew them and she said, tell him don't quit your day job. <laughs> so so it, was, it was things like that that were just so much fun. And, you know, to be able to create a world, to be able uh, to populate it and, you know, there comes a point that the characters are beginning to tell you the story um, and and, and there comes a point that 
you're writing a script and all of a sudden it's like you're just taking dictation. You're no longer writing it. Uh, that's a very, very exciting thing. So He-Man uh, regrettably didn't get into season two or, or should I say the next 65 episodes. Um, but uh, it was a wonderful experience for me. I enjoyed it. And I'll tell you what, for me to come full circle and to come back to He-Man.org and to see after all these years that there's still all these fans and that they've kept it alive for all this time, um, it's, it's, it's a wondrous and a wonderful thing. And to see them, uh, some of them coming back and accepting uh, uh, the new adventures of He-Man, you know, a book of Ecclesiastes says a time for everything under heaven. So maybe this is the time for it to, to come back and, and be liked a little bit. <laughs> okay, and finally, Jack, uh, what are you doing with yourself now? Um, we're at the R mark, so with you rhyming off what you've done, like you have in production, no doubt this is going to take another R because you seem such a busy <laughs> man. So um, what are you doing with yourself now then, sir? Uh, very busy. Developed a series um, uh, with um, Paul Watson, who's the captain of uh, of the Steve Irwin on, uh, on Whale Wars, which is a big series on Animal Planet. So I developed a dramatic series uh, based on his sea logs, uh, doing a lot of work with PBS. We're developing a uh, children's series based on Jack and Jill uh, magazine, which is an iconic uh, American children's uh, magazine. Um, it got a, uh, a motion picture that we have in development right now that I'm hopefully going to be directing down in Nashville, Tennessee in, uh, in November, and I'm doing a documentary in a couple of weeks uh, and finished uh, – finished a novel that is uh, now in submission as Simon and Schuster publishers. So uh, busy, very, very busy. Uh, look, Chris, I'm, I'm so blessed, you know, to be able to, uh, to have this kind of a life. So, and, and it's the fans that make it so for you. So I'm grateful to all the fans out there. Okay. Well, Jack, um, thank you so much. It's been a truly an honour and a privilege sitting here talking to you and just hearing some of your answers to the questions. It's nice to see you posting so actively on the, the message boards and being so proactive, you know, so many years later to do with the new adventures of He-Man and to interact with the fans. You know, I never thought in my, my wildest dreams that, you know, I'd be talking to people that have worked on the shows that, you know, like the new adventures, like the Filmation one, like the 2002 ones, you know, right writers, you know, directors, etc. It's just, um, just thank you so much for clearing some time just to sit down and talk to me. I, I really do appreciate it and uh, had a wheel of a time um, hearing some of your answers there. Thank you, Chris. And uh, I, I'm happy to be out here. And uh, as I said, you know, fans are just everything. They're, they're the reason that writers and actors and singers uh, exist. So I'm, I'm grateful to all of them. And it's been a pleasure for me to spend some time with you. Okay. Thank you again. Okay, so that was Jack Alesker, uh, worked on the new adventures of He-Man. So uh, I've been Chris Vint, also known as Vinto Man. And until next time. Let the power return!